Happy Sabbath. We are delighted that you have decided to spend some time with us. And as we huddle and we open again the book of Revelation to talk about the power of deception, I pray that God may remind you that you cannot be deceived if you continue to follow the Lamb. We are going to talk about that and a myriad of other issues today. But before we do that, we shall do what we always do, and that is open scripture with God's blessing. So let us pray. God, thank you so much for giving us the ability, uh, the ability to open scripture and to think thoughtfully about it. We pray that you stay with us and that as we begin to think about these issues, um, that you give us clarity. Uh, clarity is what we yearn for. So please let us to be let us be clear with what we say and with our thoughts. Let your word be clear in what it convicts us to. And let the path that you would have us pursue be clear as well. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, we've got a wonderful time for conversation today. At this point, it is right and proper for me to invite my co-host, my friend, my colleague, my, my everything, I think. I think that would be appropriate to say now. Joey, how are you? I'm doing well. Wow, that's quite an introduction. <laughs> yeah. That's how close we are here. Uh, how are you doing, Miguel? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. It's been a, it's been a good week. Yeah, it's uh, wrapping up the school year with our kids. Um, I think one of your kids went through a graduation. Is mm -hmm. that right? Yeah. As, yeah. as did yours? Yeah. Uh, they, what did they, they call them? Promotions? Yeah, promotions, promotions for 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 eighth grade. It's a grad. They call yeah. it a grad, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah it was uh, it's just yesterday, and yeah. it seems like it's just yesterday that they were uh, going into the first grade, and yeah. now they're yeah, they're going, going from sixth to grade. seventh, yeah. and the eighth to ninth now, and uh -huh. yeah, and your youngest, your youngest. Yes. Stay small. He's <laughs> yeah. gonna stay small forever. Uh, now he's he's going on to kindergarten. So yeah, so that's good. That's exciting. Well, today we deal with the deception. I'm not sure how you felt about the title of the lesson, mm. uh, Satan's end time deception, mm. or final deception. Um, I think Satan's end time deception is the same deception as his beginning of the time deception yeah. in that what the enemy of the souls does is to try and deceive mm -hmm. even as uh, as scripture mentions, even those who are elect. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's that's really true. Satan is nothing if not a little bit consistent, right? Mm. Um, the very first lie that he tells Adam and Eve is that you shall not surely mm -hmm. die. He casts doubt on the character of God and actually the Godship of God, right? Mm -hmm. We've talked about the importance of worship throughout that, that mm -hmm. theme throughout scripture. And from the very beginning, he casts doubt on whether God is someone who's worthy to be mm -hmm. worshiped. And it seems like um, that's been his whole mm -hmm. thing throughout. Even when he encounters Jesus, he, he tries to switch switch up who deserves to be worshipped. Here is God himself, and he Satan has the audacity to demand that that God bow down to him, which is, I mean, mind-blowing, but that, that does seem to be a, a consistent theme with Satan throughout Scripture. So what is, what is this final deception then? Um, is it, because I know that us Adventists, whom... We 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 have a very interesting relationship with Revelation, mm. and that relationship I think is punctuated by the fact that we are on the lookout 
for what God is doing, for how we are to respond for what God to what God is doing. But we also seem to be on the lookout for mm-hmm. what other people are doing or other groups are doing, and for how maybe the deceiver is operating in their midst. And I'm just wondering mm-hmm. how much of our faith tradition has to be engaged or ought to be engaged in looking around mm-hmm. to try and see how and where uh, other people are, are being deceived and how much energy are, are we to invest in realizing maybe that it's not that difficult uh, to follow the message in Revelation. It's actually shockingly simple. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's something that I, throughout my own spiritual journey, have gone back and forth on a little bit, um, because because of how Adventism formed, mm-hmm. right? And if you know anything about our history, you know that there was a lot of the Adventists, Mar- much like Martin Luther, didn't set set um, didn't start by saying we're going to start a new denomination. That wasn't their goal, right? They were a movement and they wanted to just share this message of the soon coming of Jesus, the Millerites, right? That was our, that was our origins, but there was, as, as we grew, as we drew closer and closer to that date of 1843 and then eventually 1844, um, Adventists, these, these people that they called Adventists were kicked out of churches mm-hmm. for for sharing what they believed the bible was teaching them and um because of that it created this almost ethic of um, us versus them mm. that mentality and that carried over when the seventh day adventist church eventually formed that mentality still carried over that was a part of our our um our teachings and if you're looking at scripture if you're looking at uh, the prophecy of revelation especially revelation 14 there is this idea that even religious institutions can be corrupted and there is a call to come out of her mm-hmm. my people and so that has also driven our our viewpoint that yes there's there we have to be careful just because this organization calls itself Christian doesn't mean that it's necessarily promoting the message of Christ, mm. right? So there, there has been this, this um, caution towards our relationship with other denominations. Unfortunately, we haven't always carried that over to, to saying that being honest about that message and saying, actually, that message is for all Christians at all periods, including Adventists, Right, that we have to always be making sure that we're following the Lamb, and like you said, that's that's sort of where I've landed more now. Instead of focusing on all the things that Satan is doing to deceive, although there is some caution and there is some some need to to be careful about what Satan is doing around us, the most important thing we need to be doing is to be focusing on the Lamb, mm. and as long as we're focusing on the Lamb then the Bible's message seems to be that we won't be deceived. Mm-hmm. It's when we take our eyes off the lamb that we start opening ourselves up to the deception of the devil, of the dragon, of mm. the beast. Mm. I don't know. What are your thoughts about that? That's, I think that's a wonderful microcosm of, of the tension that you find. And I think you've expressed that tension in a way in which it... it is winsome towards our faith tradition. Because I think often the easy out is to say, well, you know, Adventism is just, it's full of itself and it needs a dose of reality. And so we're going to throw out this very wealthy and and rich heritage that we have. Or we can continue to be ascetic in the way that we interact with other uh, belief systems, and so we retreat. I think what you're inviting us to do is to consider that every organization, every movement, every person who is invited to participate in this act of witnessing the coming of Christ needs to constantly be reminded that Babylon is enchanting Mm. and that the deception of Babylon is powerful because it plays to whatever biases we already possess. Mm. 
And so when you're saying early Adventists, I think the early bias uh, that Adventists had uh, is, yes, Charles Fitch calls them to come out of Babylon. And for Fitch, that meant anyone who is not a Millerite. Mm. And so that early bias of saying we are so special that everybody else, as you're mentioning, is against us, forced us to come up with some doctrines that were antithetical to the principal message of the gospel, which is inclusion. Mm. And luckily, Adventism realized that and pulled back from ideas like uh, the Schuttdor doctrine, for example. On the other, on the other hand, uh, it, the idea that a lot of us uh, struggle with or desire is that we become just so ecumenical that really your beliefs themselves, as they are voiced, uh, are completely devoid mm -hmm. of any importance. Yeah. And so I think to both those extremes, the reminder is... Babylon is enchanting not because it is gruesome to witness. It's not because Babylon is something mm -hmm. grotesque. It's because Babylon plays to some beliefs that you inherently already have. Yeah. And that's, I think, that I, I would respectfully disagree with uh, Pastor Finley, who wrote the quarterly. For me, it's not the last deception or the end time deception. It's the deception of all time. And that mm. is to, to, to allow our biases to determine mm. who we are. And, but more importantly, let's face it, Joey, to determine who God is. Yeah. To color our picture mm. of who God is. Mm. Yeah, I, I, I want to latch on. There was lot, so much good in what you said, but I want to latch on one piece where you talked about how um, Babylon isn't compelling because it's gruesome, right? And yet the way that it's described or the metaphors used in, in Revelation are kind of gruesome. Like um, the Babylon is um, a, a whore, right? Mm -hmm. Babylon is this grotesque beast. So why... Because I agree with you. I agree that Babylon is appealing to us because we are drawn we are drawn to it because it is compelling mm. and it does align with mm -hmm. our way of doing things. Why then does God, does John um, describe Babylon with such grotesque metaphors when in reality, it's not that? Because it's easy to look at those and say, well, I would never align myself with a with a <laughs> a seven headed beast, right? I would never align myself with this this um, um, unfaithful uh, woman, right? I, I would never align myself with those things, and yet, yet that I, I find myself doing that at times. So then, why does John describe it this way? So the easy the easy answer is to simply say that prophetic literature, apocalyptic literature, has to be by de facto dualistic. Mm. And in its literary motifs, you got you have to create this dualism mm. uh, that is constructed from focusing on stark contrasts, right? Yeah. And so it's the easy answer would be, well, it's a it's it's part of the literature that, mm. that John is writing. I think the more nuanced thing that we can say mm. is that John isn't interested in painting reality as we perceive it. Mm. John is interested in telling us something about ourselves. Mm. And the best analogy, as I was thinking about, uh, about what you were saying, is we've all been to carnivals. Mm. And you go to the carnival. And there's uh, a person sitting behind an easel with pen and paper in hand, and you give them some money and they will draw a caricature of you. Mm. And you get the caricature and you ask immediately, oh, do I really look like that? <laughs> um, so... The, I think the first thing that uh, skilled caricaturists do is they pick 
a faction in, in, in your face, so whether it's your eyes or your nose or your mouth, your chin, and they exaggerate it. Mm. And they exaggerate it not because they think that that's how you look. They exaggerate it because they're trying to provide commentary on who you are. Mm. And I think that's what John is doing. Uh, on top of the fact that he is trying to create literature and that apocalyptic literature by de facto demands this very stark duality. I think the more important thing is John isn't simply describing reality. Mm. That would be too easy. You just need a skilled historian to do that mm. or a social comment. But social commentary requires more nuance. And mm. so I think theology, uh, in as much as it's our attempt to talk about God, it's also our attempt to provide commentary on how we respond to this reality that is mm. God. And I think that's why John is less of a historian mm. uh, and more of a theologian. John then is less of a painter mm -hmm. and more of a caricaturist in that way. Wow, that's that's powerful. So you're saying that John is using these caricatures of of reality to sort of uncover for us what's actually happening. Mm. So we see it as something compelling, but he's trying to show these things that you are aligning yourself with, they are actually beasts. Mm -hmm. They are terrible. They're gruesome. You don't see them that way, but I'm going to show you mm. how gruesome they are. Mm. That's absolutely right. And I mean, think about uh, Revelation 12, which the mm. lesson talked a little bit about this week. In it, uh, John paints this picture of a dragon that swings its tail mm. and a third of the stars in heaven uh, are brought down. This means that this dragon has the capacity to deceive not just human beings, mm. right? And I think that was one of the points that Pastor Finley was making uh, this week through the lesson. This dragon doesn't just have the capacity to deceive you and me. It has the capacity to deceive the angels. Mm. What would cause someone that has had a front seat experience to God's awesome creative capacity, what would force them uh, or allow them to be deceived? Mm. And obviously the power of the deception is that the deception isn't grotesque or gruesome. Mm -hmm. The power of the deception is that it is enticing and appealing mm -hmm. because we see ourselves re reflected in the deception, mm -hmm. right? Um, it's one of us. It's it's that deception that is always at the heart of anything that the enemy of the souls does. And that is to show us a mirror and say how beautiful and how wonderful life in existence could be if you were in control. And that's that's very, very enticing and very compelling. Yeah. Um, it's not gruesome. It's not grotesque. However, when you follow that, mm. when you say, well, let's let's actually do this experiment where I am in control mm -hmm. and you follow that, what you end up creating is systems and structures that are grotesque and that mm. are brutal and that are abusive. The problem is that mm. at that point, it's very difficult to recognize them mm. as grotesque and abusive and brutal because they are, after all, creations made in our image, mm -hmm. in our likeness. Wow. And you see that. You see that from what happens in, in the book of Genesis, right? Mm -hmm. The first few chapters after the fall and how fast and quickly humans fall after the flood. And you have that big reset and the, the destruction of the tower, the construction of the Tower of Babel and, right. and that oppressive system that eventually becomes the namesake of Babylon and and, and this this theme throughout scripture of everything that is against is opposed to it's a twisting of of what God is trying to do and yeah i mean we we start out with such good intentions we look at the history of of uh the, the Soviet Union for example right. right there were some good intentions mm -hmm. good intended people who were behind that movement and yet we can see how quickly when people had power it twisted things so the question then becomes what is it about 
John's language, because you're absolutely right. The language itself shakes you, or it ought to shake you. What is it about that language that he is hoping will awaken something in his readership to say, oh, this isn't what we this is not what we were intending to create. And I think, and what what I'm going to say might get us in trouble. So I've been wrestling all week mm. uh, to say it or not to say it. I think too often Adventism has solely focused on a historicist approach to Revelation without realizing that even before Revelation is history, Revelation is satire mm. in very much the same way as a political cartoonist satir would use satire to describe the Soviet Union, right? Uh, there's some, I was looking at caricatures uh, that, would made, that were made of Stalin. Um, and there's one that, that just stands in, uh, that stands out of this really strong, powerful uh, ruler and leader, but he's barefoot. And the feet in the, in the caricature are bigger than, every, than anything else. And so the thought of the satirist there is, yeah, we, it might seem like uh, Stalinism is a great idea, but it leaves us all barefoot. Mm. And so um, the hope that the satire has is that at some point, somehow, some way, it'll awaken its audience to this deeper reality that you are now living under a system that might have seemed good, that might have been your own creation, that you might have bought into, but that is in the end a deception. Hmm. And that can be applicable. We don't have to wait till, if we see it as satire, then we don't have to wait until the end times in order for us to 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 apply that message to us. Mm. What you're saying is that this is a message that's applicable throughout time mm. with God's people. Am I hearing mm -hmm. you correctly? No. So you're not saying, if I'm understanding correctly, you're not saying that there is no value to an historicist perspective of Revelation, but in addition to an historicist interpretation of Revelation, if we can see Revelation also as satire and commentary that's universally ap applicable to every time and space, it 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 will um, it will be even more of a mm -hmm. blessing to our church and to us. And I think that guards you against historicist interpretations that are triumphalistic, mm. which I think is the danger. Mm. Um, I think that might be. Uh, when we're talking about deceptions, that might be the greatest deception. Mm. And you've talked about this here a lot, right? That the beast has its methodology and its approach to power mm -hmm. and that the temptation to become uh, co-heirs of the beast is that we use the same tools uh, to, for control that the beast uses in, and we baptize in the name of the lamb. Yeah, And I think... If you're not careful and if you don't preclude your historicist readings by uh, the capacity uh, that satire invites us to, which is don't take yourself so seriously mm. and be self-critical. Yeah. Um, if you don't do that first, then we have, as you've said here many times, we have the capacity to have these wonderful, beautiful lamb-like truths being co-opted by the beast. Wow, that's a very important point that sometimes in an historicist approach to it, which again, we're not saying that there's no value there, but there is a tendency to read into it that our side is the winning side, right? right? And once we, we have that framework, oh, I'm on that winning side, then it almost baptizes anything that I do as being right mm -hmm. and righteous because I'm on the winning side. And we've seen that danger with God's people, mm -hmm. right? I mean, that that was the prophet's criticism of God's people. That was Jesus's criticism of God's people when he was here on, on earth. So there was this mentality like, we're Jews. So 
we're obviously God's people. We can't do anything mm-hmm. wrong. And so God is going to be on our side. So we can do whatever we need to do in order to promote. Not, not that all Jews believe that, but there were groups of Jews that believed that. I mean, the zealots had this mentality that the establishment of the Jewish nation on earth was a part of God's mm-hmm. plan. That was their reading of, of the prophecies. And so it baptized their use of violence as being as being good because of course, God wants us to be able to establish um, his people here on earth into a kingdom. And so we will need to fight and be violent and attack in order to establish that kingdom. And it made it right in their minds. Looking back, we can be critical of them and say, no, that was not right. That was not the right interpretation. What you should have and what Jesus was saying was what you should be doing is looking at the kingdom growing here right now. What is God doing in this moment in your life and establish that? And what I'm hearing you say is that the book of Revelation can be that for us today. We, can, we Instead of saying, well, we are Adventists, we are, we are part of this group that is called out of we've been called out of Babylon. And so obviously we're on the right side because we came out of mm-hmm. Babylon. And so now anything that we do as an Adventist church is right. Instead mm-hmm. of approaching it that way, realize that at any point, God is saying that the people of God, who the people who we think of as the people of God can be deceived mm-hmm. and can be twisted to, um, to Babylon's purpose. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I think that's, that's the point, right? The lesson also talks about Revelation 13. And it, again, it's this picture of a dragon that is, of a beast this, and uh, a dragon. And um, you have this dragon standing at the shore of the sea and a dra- and a beast comes out of the sea. And the beast is given power to utter blasphemy and to deceive people. Mm-hmm. And, you hear the language and then you say, well, we definitely are not going to fall for that. Because mm-hmm. as you're saying, we know that we've been called out of Babylon. And I think that what John is doing in Revelation 12 and 13 is he's simply doing what Jesus taught him how to do as a preacher, as a pastor, as a student of scripture. As Jesus engages people who say, well, we definitely can't be that. And in Jesus's case, it was um, either unclean ritually and, or ceremonially unclean or Roman, which it, it all had to do again with, with this idea of, cle- of clean and cleanliness, cleanliness and purity. Jesus says, well, um, let me draw a satirical picture for you. Mm-hmm. And he does. He draws a caricature for them. He draws a rock with a beard and a circumcision. And he says, God can make sons of Abraham out of these rocks. Was Jesus saying that Israel's Abrahamic heritage meant nothing? No. no. Again, he's using satire. He's, he's, try, he's trying to use the language mm. that is so over the top that it's going to shake you and awaken you. And I know, I know that when we hear uh, Pastor Miguel and Pastor Joey are saying that revelation is satire, I, I can hear almost the trepidation in our viewer's mind and in our viewer's heart. But Adventism has been comfortable with referring to scripture as satire in other places. Think about Lazarus and the rich man and that famous parable that Jesus tells. We, we, Our default interpretation for that parable is, oh, Jesus is being satirical. He's actually making a deeper point, and that is what really matters is how you treat the poor. Mm. John is doing the same thing, but because we have become so enamored, I think, with our position in the great story that is Revelation, uh, we're unable to realize that right now what John is trying to do to us is to shake and awaken us lest we be deceived. Yeah. And I think um, for some of our listeners, it, it may be important to establish what we mean by an historicist interpretation, mm-hmm. right? That that there is a 
that these events that are described or these things that are stories or um, metaphors that are used in the book of Revelation are grounded at certain points in history, right? That has been the traditional Adventist approach to the book of Revelation that inspired um, the way that William Miller um, interpreted Daniel and Revelation and that... Um, especially in the book of Daniel, you see these nations and they are grounded. You can see even, even the angel comes to, to um, Daniel and says, well, this is the Medo-Persian empire. Mm -hmm. And, and so it it describes touch points for these, these powers. But what we're saying is that, that not that there is no value in that approach, that there is value in that approach, but that um, perhaps what God is doing through this, through Daniel, and also the, especially the book of Revelation, is that that they, in addition to that historicist approach, he's also trying to show that that there is a a movement of power, a movement, an approach to religion, an approach to control that is antithetical to God and yet still so appealing to humans, so appealing not only to, to those outside of the church, outside of the people of God, but appealing to the people, people who call themselves the people mm -hmm. of God, so much so that we are willing to and have used in our past those methodologies, the methodologies of force and power and violence in order to, to do what we believe is good, mm -hmm. right? Um, we've engaged in, essentially engaged in the idolatry of these mm -hmm. things that we have called good. Um, you know, there's, there's the protection. There were times when, um, Christians, and we pointed back to the, um, the Roman Catholic church has used these methodologies. I mean, the Spanish inquisition, right? Mm -hmm. We, we point to these moments, but to be fair, Adventists have at times used those kinds of methodologies too. Now we haven't executed anyone, thankfully, but well. <laughs> there are times that we have maligned people and destroyed people's yeah. reputations. We've used force and um, and compelled people to try to force everyone to see things the same way that we have. And so we have used well. these these powerful methodologies. Go ahead, push back. Oh. No, 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 no. I think you're right. I, yeah. I think you're absolutely right. And yeah. I think I was just thinking our senior pastor tells this story a lot about just how how sideways we can go. Mm -hmm. So there's two examples that come to mind and either of them might get us into very hot water. So I I completely exhume you from responsibility. <laughs> this is just me now talking. Um, you know, the Rwandan genocide. Mm. Adventists true. actively participated in the slaughter of fellow Adventists. Because they were so they were so deceived, and I think that's what's really frightening about what you're saying. Mm -hmm. That we have been so, have at times been so deceived that we've been maybe we haven't institutionalized uh, murder like like they did during the Spanish Inquisition, but we. But we have acted in ways that are brutal and devastating. Uh, you know that there's a um, a conversation in Africa, uh, in Uganda, uh, at currently mm -hmm. about an LGBTQ plus law that is seeking to criminalize mm -hmm. uh, this behavior. Now, whatever your position is on LG LGBTQ plus rights and however your ethical inclination is to that, Adventism has always had a long history of a separation between church and state. Yeah. And more importantly, in our official, very conservative approach to this issue, we've said that we, our primary mission is to love people well mm. and to convict them of their sin. Now we're not hedging either way, but we're we're saying this is what we officially have stood for. And yet there are very prominent Adventist voices now in Uganda that are 
collaborating with the government in in, a, in an attempt to criminalize uh, this. Mm. And so I just wonder, Joey, what do you think John would say to <laughs> us? Um, Beware of the beast, follow the lamb. Mm. You know, it's so easy mm. to look at the Rwandan genocide and say, well, that's not me. Mm. Like, I would never do that. Mm. But the reality is, looking at that, that impulse, and that seems to be what John mm. is saying, is that impulse is present in all of us. Mm. The beast impulse is present mm. in all of us, which is why John is so adamantly pointing out this dichotomy between the way of the mm -hmm. lamb and the way, of, and the way of the lamb doesn't seem to make sense, right? How do you make change by sacrifice? How do you make change by dying, right? Dying seems to be the end of any kind of movement. And yet what we have seen in the life of Jesus and in the life of Jesus followers, people like Martin Luther King Jr., that this way of the lamb actually is much more powerful, much more powerful than force. Mm. Like in the wrong, long run, the way of God the principle of love that he has woven into the fabric of this universe eventually wins, mm -hmm. right? I love that Martin Luther Jr. Uh, Martin Luther King Jr. quote um, um, that nothing can change hate. No, nothing can overcome hate except love. Mm -hmm. Hate can't overcome hate. Only love can. Mm -hmm. So that the and his point is absolutely right. Love doesn't always overcome hate. It doesn't. But the only thing that has ever been shown to mm. overcome hate is love. Pouring more hate onto hate doesn't actually eradicate hate. It just creates more hate. Love is the only thing that's ever shown its ability to transform a heart of hate into a heart of love. And so I think there is just so much... I think what John would say to us is beware Beware of the way the beast is lingering inside all of us. Because like you said, as, as, as much of a caricature, caricature that as John describes that way in the book of Revelation, it is very compelling to all of us. And not just in massive geopolitical arenas. I mean, even in our homes, right? As a parent, I have seen the beast come out of me at times when my kids misbehave. And when I think of them, the way that they misbehave reflecting badly on me, especially in those moments, I can see that beastly impulse come out. And yet God is saying, that is not the way. That is not the way that I want you to parent. I don't want you to parent by force. I want you to parent by love, mm. right? And that's difficult. It is difficult because... It's so much easier to resort to force. And I can hear it. Like, I can hear it through the screen because I've said it myself. Mm. Does that mean that we don't stand firmly against sin? Mm. Um, this idea, everybody talks about love, right? We love, mm. we, we love to talk about love. And... Um, and then we say, well, what does that really mean? Do, do we allow anything and everything to go in our churches, in our families, in our communities, in our yeah. countries? Are there no standards? I can hear it. Mm. Which is why I think that, I mean, folks, we've gotten into enough trouble over the past 40 minutes. <laughs> so we'll just go one, one step further. I think, Joey, what you're saying and... At this point, if you're not, then just say, hey, that's not what I'm saying. I think what you're saying is, if we're going to make a mistake, mm. the temptation is never to make the mistake on the side of love. In other words, mm. the temptation is never, I'm going to love too much. Mm. The temptation is, is more often than not, there's this thing which is good and the standard which must be observed that is good. And in order to protect and defend that standard, I am going to resort to any means necessary, even if those means sometimes are beastly ways. When that decision is, I think what we're trying to say is, look, 
Obviously, God has standards. Obviously, there's right and wrong. Obviously, there's sin, and that's real. But our temptation is very rarely to confront all those realities by saying, you know what? Yeah, I'm going to love you more. And if my mistake is that I loved you too much, then so be it. That is seldomly the space we land in. That's true. I, I, I agree with you. Yes, that's that's it. We we do have a tendency to err on the side of of using control and power and manipulation over using love and mm-hmm. grace, right? And and yet using love and grace, using too much love and grace is a little bit easier to come back from than coming back from using too much because this way, the way of the beast destroys relationship, mm-hmm. right? And it's hard to come back and heal a broken mm-hmm. relationship. Now, what we aren't saying, we're not saying love is permissive, right? Because as we see the way that Jesus demonstrates love, he calls people out on things. He does. But he calls them out with an intention of bringing to redemption, mm-hmm. right? It's not calling out to protect myself. In fact, Jesus does the opposite. He calls things out to, in a way that even creates danger mm-hmm. for himself, right? So I, the, the problem with, so for example, the problem with sometimes the way that I parent, just being honest here, and, and I don't know if any other parents struggle with this, but sometimes the way that I parent is, is not so much about what is best for my child, but about what is best for me right? In that moment, when my kids are bickering, in that moment, what I want is peace and quiet. Mm -hmm. And because I want that peace and quiet so badly, I'm willing to use ungodly ways of getting peace and quiet. Now I can say, I can rationalize and say, well, it's not good for my kids to fight. I need to teach them that they shouldn't be bickering, that they shouldn't be attacking each other, that they need to be getting along. I can can rationalize all these things. And those are all thrown into the, the mix. Yes, I do want them to learn to be obedient and caring to each other. I do want those things. But if I wanted those things more than I wanted just peace and quiet, then I would approach that conversation very differently. Mm-hmm. Instead of just yelling, be quiet, you need to stop. Instead of doing that, I would engage them in a conversation because that is actually going to teach them ways of being loving and being interacting in healthy ways more than me forcing myself and my will upon them, mm-hmm. right? And yet, because I want this peace and quiet more than that, I'm willing to say, you know what? I can use any means, any means at my disposal to get it. And at that point, that is the point where we we enter into idolatry. Mm-hmm. I loved the book that we've been reading. We've we've talked about it, I think, every week so far. Um, the book that we've been reading as a staff, uh, Peacemaker, right? That book describes how idols are usually good things that we put in wrong places, mm-hmm. wrong positions, right? Whenever we want an idol more than we want to follow God and do things God's way, we know that it's an idol. And we do this with all sorts of good things like wanting peace and quiet. That's a good thing. And yet when we we approach that, we, we try to obtain that in, in ways that are using beastly methods, power, manipulation, control, when we do that, then we've we've created an idol of ourselves. Yeah, and I think one of the things that I that I love in what you said is yes, you're absolutely right in in stating that love is not permissive, right? Love doesn't allow for no standards. Mm-hmm. Love grounds, however, the pursuit of those standards in relational wealth. Yes, that's well said. And so mm. often we've missed that. <laughs> I I think the reason why we're able to look at at something like what happened in Rwanda for example and say how was that possible that people who worship together turned on each other in that way? I think it was because there was a deficit of relational wealth. Yes, you might have worshipped together, Mm. but you didn't possess the capacity Mm. to invest yourself 
in crossing over that bridge, there was this other bias that didn't come from the church. It came from the world around that impeded this connection, right? Mm -hmm. So there was no relational wealth. And that made it very easy to fray. When the time of trouble came, you frayed and you failed. Pursue standards. Please pursue standards. But don't pursue standards when there is a deficit of relational wealth. Mm. And I think that's wow. the big deception. The big deception is that we become the beast because we pursue these standards devoid of relational wealth. Don't tell me who belongs or who doesn't belong in the church until you've spent time talking and learning their stories. Christ never, Joey, fought against positions. Hmm. Christ was seeking to include people. I think it's really hmm. easy to demonize positions hmm. because it's because it's it's clean and it's sanitized and it's abstract. It's much harder to deal with people because people are we we're messy and we're complex and we're nuanced. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why the invitation to to the pursuit of standards is an invitation to pursue relational wealth with people. Wow, yeah. And that relational wealth, getting to know the people guards us from that one thing that enables us to enact violence on others mm -hmm. and that is dehumanizing mm. them. We stop mm. seeing them as people. And more importantly, we stop seeing them as children of God, mm. right? I mean, that is that is the danger. When we start associating people with positions and we've made caricatures of them, then, then it's okay for us to treat them in ways that are terrible, the ways yeah. that we would never treat a fellow child of God. Mm. And yet... That is, that is the danger here. And I think that's what you've been alluding to as, as the danger of the historicist approach is that when we start aligning the beast with certain groups of people, rather than saying this beastly impulse is present in all of us, we start seeing them as a caricature and then we can treat them in dehumanizing ways and be okay with it. And yet what the message of the revelation seems to be saying is, don't be so quick to just say this group of people, they're the only beasts mm. because that beastly impulse is present in all of us. And even the people of God can be deceived and twisted mm. to beastly ways. So I have a confession to make. When I started reading the lesson earlier this, this past week, there was a tinge of anxiety because I said, we, how do we find ways in which this lesson is applicable beyond uh, to our lives, beyond kind of the tired tropes that we've used? And I've got to say, Joey, this conversation has to be one of my favorite conversations mm -hmm. on Revelation, because I think what you what you, what you just pointed out is something that is borne out in the text. And think about Revelation nineteen and twenty, mm -hmm. right? This is when evil itself is put to death, mm. right? Thrown in a lake of fire. What I find really funny, and you can read it at your leisure, is that it never says that people are going to be thrown into the lake mm. of fire. It's the beast, it's the dragon, it's the false prophet. It's these caricatures that are thrown into the lake of fire. Because I think God realizes that people are so much more complex mm. and so much more nuanced. Yeah. And so at bare minimum, the invitation is to use the same restraint that John used. Mm. It could have been really easy for John to say the beast, the false prophet, uh, the dragon, and those Romans, you know, those Roman soldiers, they're all thrown into the... I, I think at bare minimum, what we ought to do if we're going to guard ourselves against the great deception is to show the same restraint where we're actually talking about people mm. that John uses because wow. people are nuanced Yeah. because when we start dehumanizing people and I love what you said and friends, if you don't remember anything else, remember uh, what, what Joey just said, when you start dehumanizing people, 
you can justify treating people in beastly ways. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe that is why John chooses to chose to use this apocalyptic mm. approach so that it could have the flexibility of obviously he had certain groups in mind when he wrote it, but it, it seems to have that flexibility to not only apply to his time, not only apply to the end of time, but also apply to our time. And I think that's, that's when revelation becomes truly, truly meaningful for us. So to see, so the great deception perhaps then is that positions are more important than people and that our position is right. Mm. And that, that is nothing new. Mm. That's been the same since we fell on in that garden. Joey, why don't you pray for us? Our good and gracious God, you, you did the difficult thing. You followed the way of love. You came down here as a human. When you could have just said, forget about these humans. Let's do a reset. Let's mm -hmm. eradicate them and start over. No, you did the difficult thing. You did the sacrificial thing. Even, even when you knew that the majority of us would reject you, you'd still chose that path. And then you called us to follow you. And so we ask that you help us to do that difficult thing, to follow the way of the lamb instead of slipping towards those beastly impulses that are present within all of us. Help us to follow that, that difficult path in the ways that we treat each other, that ways that we interact with our fellow Christians, the ways that we interact with all the peoples of this world is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Dear friend, God loves you. Never forget that.